Hello, I'm Brandon Peterson, creator and narrator of Storytime. I hope you're enjoying the story. Before today's episode, I wanted to say thank you for listening and ask that you subscribe, share, and rate our podcast so that others can find us. If you're enjoying the podcast, I ask that you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash storytime by Brandon Peterson. Your support helps us to focus more time on telling these great stories and gets more episodes to you sooner. Again, thank you. And now, back to your story. Chapter 11 Lucy Westerner's Diary 12th September How good they all are to me. I quite love that dear Dr. Van Helsing. I wonder why he is so anxious about these flowers. He positively frightened me he was so fierce. And yet, he must have been right, for I feel comfort from them already. And somehow, I do not dread being alone tonight, and I can go to sleep without fear. I shall not mind any flapping outside the window. Oh, the terrible struggle that I've had against sleep so often of late. The pain of the sleeplessness, or the pain of the fear of sleep, with such unknown horrors as it has for me. How blessed are some people whose lives have no fears, no dreads, to whom sleep is a blessing that comes nightly and brings nothing but sweet dreams. Well, here I am tonight, hoping for sleep and lying like Ophelia in the play with virgin cants and maiden struments. I never liked garlic before, but tonight it is delightful. There is peace in its smell. I feel sleep coming already. Good night, everybody. Dr. Seward's Diary 13th September Called at Berkeley and found Van Helsing, as usual, up to time. The carriage ordered from the hotel was waiting. The professor took his bag, which he always brings with him now. Let all be put down exactly. Van Helsing and I arrived at Hillingham at eight o'clock. It was a lovely morning. The bright sunshine and all the fresh feeling of early autumn seemed like the completion of nature's annual work. The leaves are turning all kinds of beautiful colors, but had not yet begun to drop from the trees. When we entered, when we met Mrs. Westenra coming out of the morning room, she was always an early riser. She greeted us warmly and said, You will be glad to know that Lucy is better. The dear child is still asleep. I looked into her room and saw her, but did not go in, lest I should disturb her. The professor smiled and looked quite jubilant. He rubbed his hands together and said, Aha! I thought I had diagnosed the case. My treatment is working. To which she answered, You must not take all the credit to yourself, Doctor. Lucy's state this morning is in part due to me. How do you mean, madame? asked the professor. Well, I was anxious about the dear child in the night, and went into her room. She was sleeping soundly, so soundly that even my coming did not wake her. But the room was awfully stuffy. There were a lot of those horrible, strong-smelling flowers about everywhere, and she had actually a bunch of them around her neck. I feared that the heavy odor would be too much for the dear child in her weak state, 
So I took them all away and opened a bit of the window and let in a little fresh air. You will be pleased with her, I'm sure. She moved off to her boudoir, where she usually breakfasted early. As she had spoken, I watched Professor's face and saw it turn ashen grey. He had been able to retain his self-command whilst the poor lady was present, for he knew her state and how mischievous a shock would be. He actually smiled on her as he held the door for her to pass into her room, but the instant she had disappeared he pulled me, suddenly and forcibly, into the dining room and closed the door. Then for the first time in my life I saw Van Helsing break down. He raised his hands over his head in a sort of mute despair, and he beat his palms together in a helpless way. Finally, he sat down on a chair, and putting his hands before his face, began to sob, with loud, dry sobs that seemed to come from the very racking of his heart. Then he raised his arms again, and though appealing to the whole universe, God, 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 he said, What have we done? What has this poor thing done, that we are so sore beset. Is there fate amongst us still, sent down from the pagan world of old, that such things must be in such way? This poor mother, all annoying, and all for the best of she think, does such a thing as lose her daughter, body and soul. We must not tell her, we must not even warn her, or she will die. And then both die. Oh, how we are beset! How we are all the powers of the devil against us! Suddenly he jumped to his feet. Come, he said. Come and we must see and act, devils or no devils. All the devils at once, it matters not. We fight him all the same. He went into the hall door with his bag, and together we went up to Lucy's room. Once again I drew up the blind whilst Van Helsing went towards the bed. This time he did not start as he looked on the poor face with the same awful waxen pallor as before. He wore a look of stern sadness and infinite pity. As I expected, he murmured, but the, that hissing inspiration of his which meant so much. Without a word he went and locked the door and then began to set out on the table the instruments for yet another operation of transfusion of blood. I had long ago recognized the necessity and begun to take off my coat, but he stopped me with a warning hand. No, he said. Today you must operate. I shall provide. You are weakened already. As he spoke, he took off his coat and rolled up his shirt sleeve. Again the operation. Again the narcotic. Again some return of color to the ashy cheeks. And the regular breathing of healthy sleep. This time I watched while Sven Helsing recruited himself and rested. Presently, he took an opportunity of telling Mrs. Westenra that she must not remove anything from Lucy's room without consulting him, that the flowers were of a medicinal value, and that the breathing of the air odor was a part of the system of cure. And then he took over the care of the, of the case himself, saying that he would watch this night, and the next, and would send for me when to come. After another hour, Lucy waked from her sleep, fresh and bright, and seemed not much the worse for her terrible ordeal. What does it all mean? I am beginning to wonder if my long habit of life amongst the insane has been to tell upon my own brain. Lucy Westenra's Diary 17th September Four nights and four days of peace. 
I am getting so strong again that I hardly know myself. It is as if I had passed through some long nightmare, and I had just awakened to see the beautiful sunshine and feel the fresh air of the morning around me. I have a dim half-remembrance of long, anxious times of waiting and fearing, darkness in which there is not even the pain of hope to make present distress more poignant, and then long spells of oblivion and the rising back to life as a diver coming up through great press of water. Since, however, Dr. Van Helsing has been with me, all this bad dreaming seems to have passed away. The noises that used to frighten me out of my wits, the flapping against the windows, the distant voices which seemed so close to me, the harsh sounds that came from I know not where and commanded me to do I know not what, have all ceased. I go to bed now without any fear of sleep. I do not even keep awake. I, I've grown quite fond of the garlic, and a box full arrives for me every day from Harlem. Tonight, Dr. Van Helsing is going away, as he has to be for a day in Amsterdam. But I need not be watched. I am well enough to be left alone. Thank God for Mother's sake and dear Arthur's, and for all our friends who have been so kind. I shall not even feel the change, for last night Dr. Van Helsing slept in his chair a lot of the time. I found myself asleep twice when I woke, but I did not fear to go asleep again, although the boughs or bats or something napping almost angrily against the window panes. The Pall Mall Gazette, 18th September. The Escaped Wolf. Perilous Adventure of Our Interviewer. Interview with the Keeper in the Zoological Gardens. After many inquiries, and almost as many refusals, perpetually using the words Paul Mall Gazette as a sort of talisman, I managed to find the keeper of the section of the Zoological Gardens in which the wolf department is included. Thomas Builder lives in one of the cottages in the enclosure behind the Elephant House, and was just sitting down to his tea when I found him. Thomas and his wife are hospitable folk, elderly and without children, and if the specimen I enjoy of their hospitality be of the average kind, their lives must be pretty comfortable. The keeper would not enter on what he called business until the supper was over. We were all satisfied. Then, when the table was cleared, and we had lit his pipe, he said, Now, sir, you can go on and ask me what you want. You'll excuse me refusing to talk of professional subjects for meals. I gives the wolves and the jackals and the hyenas in all our section their tea before I begin to ask them questions. How do you mean, ask them questions? I queried, wishful to get him into a talkative humor. Eating of them over the head with a pole is one way, scratching our ears is another, and gets a flushing once a bit as sure to their gals. I don't so much mind the fuss, it eating with the pole afore I chucks them in their dinner, but I wait till they've had their sherry and coffee, so to speak, afore I tries on the scr ear scratching. Mind ya. Yes, philosophically. There's a deal of a tizing nature in us, as in them there in any mills. Here's a you a coming and asking of me questions about me business, and I that grumpy like that only for the bloomin' arf quid, I'd seen you blowed first for I'd answer. 
Not even when you ask me sarcastic like if I'd like you to ask the superintendent if you might ask me questions. Without offense, did I tell you to go to hell? You did. And when you said you'd report me for using of obscene language, that was hitting me over the head. But the arf quid made it all right. I weren't a going to fight, so I waited for the food. And did with my oil, as the wolves and lions and tigers does. But Lord love your art. Now that the old woman has stuck a chunk of her tea cake in me and rinsed me out with her blooming old teapot and I've lit up, you can scratch me ears for all you're worth and I won't get even a growl out of me. Drive along with your questions. I know what you're coming at, that there escaped wolf. Exactly. I want you to give me a few of your view of it. Just tell me how it happened. And when you know the facts, I'll get you to say what you consider was the cause of it and how you think the whole affair will end. All right, Governor. This here is about the whole story. That air wolf, what you call a berserker, was one of three grey wounds that came from Norway to Yarmax, which we brought off him four years ago. He was a nice, well-behaved wolf that never gave no trouble to talk of. I'm more surprised at him for one, to get out more than any other animal in the place. But there you can't trust wolves no more nor women. Don't you mind him, sir? Broke in Mrs. Tom with a cheery laugh. He's got a mind in the animals so long that blessed if he ain't like an old wolf himself, and there ain't no harm in him. Well, sir, it was about two hours after feeding yesterday when I first hear my disturbance. I was making up a litter within the monkey house for a young puma which is ill, but when I hear the yelping and the howling, I came right away, straight. There is Bersicker a tearing like a mad thing at the bars, as if he wanted to get out. There wasn't much people about that day, and close at hand was an only man, tall, thin chap with a oak nose and pointed beard, with a few white hairs running through it. He had a hard, cold look and red eyes, and I took a sort of mislike to him, for it seemed as if it was him as they was irritating at. He had white kid gloves on and his hands, and he pointed out the animals to me and says, Keeper, these wolves seem upset at something. Maybe it's you, says I, but not like the airs he gave himself. He did not get angry as I hoped he would, but he smiled a kind of insolent smile with a mouthful of sharp white teeth. Oh no, they would like me, he says. Oh, yes, they would, says I, imitating him. They always likes a bone or two to clean their teeth on the tea time, which you is a bag full. Well, it was an odd thing. But when the animals see us talking, they lay down, and when I went over to Bersicker, he let me stroke his ears, same as ever. Then that man came over and blessed, but if he didn't put his hand and stroke the old wolf's ears too. Take care, says I, Bersicker's quick. Never mind, he says. I'm used to them. Are you in the business yourself? I says, taking off me hat, for a man that trades in wolves, answered her, 
is a good friend of Keeper's. No, says he. Not exactly in the business, but I've made pets of several. And with that, he lifts his hat as polite as a lord and walks away. Old Bersiker kept a looking after him till he was out of sight, and then he went and lay down in a corner and wouldn't come out the whole evening. Well, last night, soon as the moon was up, the wolves here all began howling. There weren't nothing for them to howl at. There weren't no one near except someone that was evidently a calling the dogs somewheres out back of the gardens in Park Road. Once or twice I went out to see all was right, and it was, and then the howling stopped. Just before twelve o'clock, I just took a look round before turning in, and bust me, but... When I came opposite old Bersiker's cage, I see the rails broken and twisted about, and the cage empty. And that's all I know for certain. Did you, or anyone else, see anything? One of our gardeners was a-coming home about the same time, uh, Harmony, when he sees a big grey dog coming out through the gardening edges. At least, so he says. But I don't give him much for myself. For if he didn't ever say a word about it to his missus when he got home and when he only after the escape of the wolf was made known and we had to been up all night hunting for the part for Bersiker that he remembers seeing anything. My own belief is that the harmony had got into his head. Now, Mr. Builder, can you account in any way for the escape of the wolf? Well, sir, he said, with a suspicious sort of modesty, I think I can, but I don't know as how you'd be satisfied with the theory. Certainly I shall. If a man like you, who knows the animals from experience, can't hazard a good guess, at any rate, who is even to try? Well then, sir, I account for it this way. It seems to me that that air wolf escaped simply because he wanted to get out. For the hearty way that both... Thomas and his wife laughed at the joke, I could see that it had done service before, and that the whole explanation was simply an elaborate sell. I couldn't cope in bandage with the worthy Thomas, but I thought I knew a Sawyer way to his heart. So I said, Now, Mr. Bittler, we'll consider that first half-sovereign worked off, and his, this brother of his is waiting to be claimed when you've told me what you think will Right ye are, sir, he said briskly. You'll excuse me, I know, for a chafing of ye, but the old woman here winked at me, which was as much as telling me to go on. Well, I never, said the old lady. My opinion is this. That air wolf is hiding of somewheres. The gardener, what did, remembers that he was a, a galloping northward, faster than a horse could go. But I don't believe him, for you see, sir, wolves don't gallop no more than dogs does. They're not being built that way. Wolves is fine things in a storybook, and I dare say, when they gets in packs and does be chiving something, that's more a fear than they is. They can make a devil of a noise and chop it up, whatever it is. But Lord bless you, in real life a wolf is only a low creature, not half so clever nor bold as a good dog. And not half a quieter as much fight in him. Now, this one ain't been used to fighting or ever to providing for himself, and more like he's somewhere around the park, hiding and a shivering and a 
and if he thinks at all, wondering where he is to get his breakfast from. Or maybe he's got down to some area and is a coal, coal cellar. My eye won't come cook at rum start when he sees him, green eyes a-shining out at her in the dark. If he can't get food, he's bound to look for it, and mayhap he might chance to light up on a butcher shop in time. If he doesn't, and some nursemaid goes a-walking off with a soldier leaving off the infant in the permulator, well, I shouldn't be surprised if the census is one baby the less. That's all. I was handing him the half-sovereign when something came bobbing up against the window, and Mr. Builder's face doubled his natural length with surprise. "'God bless me,' he said. "'If there ain't old Berserker, come back by himself.' We went to the door and opened it. An almost unnecessary proceeding, it seemed to me. I have always thought that a wild animal never looks so well as when some obstacle of pronounced durability is between us. A personal experience has intensified rather than diminished that idea.' After all, however, there is nothing like custom, for neither Builder nor his wife thought any more of the wolf than I sure of a dog. The animal itself was as peaceful and well-behaved as the, that father of all pictured wolves, Red Riding Hood's quondam friend, whilst moving her confidence in masquerade. The whole scene was an unutterable mixture of comedy and pathos. The wicked wolf that, for half a day, had paralyzed London and set all the children in the town shivering in their shoes, was there in a sort of penitent mood, and was received and petted like a sort of vulpine prodigal son. Old Builder examined him over with the most tender solicitude, and when he had finished with his penitence, said, There I knew the poor old chap would be getting into some kind of trouble, didn't I say it all along? Here's his head all cut and full of broken glass. He's been a-getting over some bloomin' wall or other. It's a shame that people are allowed top of walls with broken bottles. That's air what comes out of it. Come along, Bersicker. He took the wolf and locked him up in a cage, with a piece of meat that satisfied, in quantity at any rate, the elementary conditions of the fatted calf, and went off to report. I came off, too, to report the only exclusive information that is given today regarding the strange escapade in the zoo. Dr. Seward's Diary 7th September I was engaged after dinner in my study, posting up my books, which, through press of other work and many visits to Lucy, had fallen sadly into arrear. Suddenly the door was burst open, and in rushed my patient with his face distorted with passion. I was thunderstruck, for such a thing as a patient getting off his own accord into the superintendent's study is almost unknown. Without an instant's pause, he made straight at me. He had a dinner knife in his hand, and as I saw, he was dangerous. I tried to keep the table between us. He was too quick and too strong for me, however, for before I could get my balance, he had struck me and cut my left wrist rather severely. Before he could strike again, however, I got in my right and he sprawled on his back on the floor. My wrist bled freely, and quite a little pool trickled on the carpet. I saw that my friend was not intent on further effort, and occupied myself up with binding my wrist, keeping a wry eye on the prostrate figure at all time. When the attendants rushed in, and we turned our attention to him, his employment positively sickened me. He was lying on his belly on the floor, licking up like a dog the blood which had fallen from my wounded wrist. 
He was easily secured, and to my surprise, went with the attendants quite placidly, simply repeating over and over again, The blood is the life. The blood is the life. I cannot afford to lose blood just at present. I have lost too much, late for my physical good, and when the prolonged strain of Lucy's illness and its horrible phases is telling on me, I am overexcited and weary. I need rest. Rest, rest, rest. Happily, Van Helsing has summoned me, so I need not forego my sleep. Tonight I could not well do without it. Telegram. Van Helsing, Antwerp, to Seward, Carfax. Sent to Carfax, Sussex, as no county given, delivered late by 22 hours. 17th September. Do not fail to be at Hillingham tonight. If not watching all the time, frequently, visit and see that the flowers are as placed. Very important, do not fail. Shall be with you as soon as possible after arrival. Dr. Seward's diary. 18th September. Just off for train to London, the arrival of Van Helsing's telegram filled me with dismay. A whole night lost, and I know by bitter experience what may happen in a night. Of course, it is possible that all may be well, but what may have happened? Surely there is some horrible doom hanging over us that every possible accident should thwart us in all we try to do. I shall take this cylinder with me, and then I can complete my entry on Lucy's phonograph. Memorandum. Left by Lucy Westenra. 17th September. Night. I write this, and leave it to be seen, so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. This is an exact record of what took place tonight. I feel I am dying of weakness, and have barely strength to write. But it must be done if I die in the doing. I went to bed as usual, taking care of the flowers where placed, as Dr. Van Helsing directed, and soon fell asleep. I was waked by the flapping at the window, which had begun after the sleepwalking on the cliff at Whitby when Mina saved me, and which now I know so well. I was not afraid, but I did wish that Dr. Seward was in the next room, as Dr. Van Helsing said he would be, so that I might have called him. I tried to go to sleep, could not came to me, the old fear of sleep, and I determined to keep awake. Perversely, sleep would try to come, and then I did not want it, so as I feared to be alone. I opened my door and called out, Is there anybody there? There was no answer. I was afraid to wake Mother, and so closed my door again. Then, outside in the shrubbery, I heard a sort of howl like a dog's, but more fierce and deeper. I went to the window and looked out, but could see nothing except a big bat which had evidently been buffeting its wings against the window. So I went back to bed again, but determined not to go to sleep. Presently the door opened and Mother looked in, seeing by my moving that I was not asleep. She came in and sat by me. She said to me, even more sweetly and softly than her wont, I was uneasy about you, darling. I came in to see that you were all right. I fear she might catch cold sitting there. I asked her to come in and sleep with me. So she came into bed and lay down beside me. She did not take off her dressing gown, for she said she would only lay a while and then go back to her own bed. 
As she lay there in my arms and I in hers, the flapping and buffeting came to the window again. She was startled, a little frightened, and cried out, What is that? I tried to pacify her and at last succeeded, and she lay quiet, but I could hear her poor dear heart still beating terribly. After a while, there was a low howl again out of the shrubbery, and shortly after there was a crash at the window, and a lot of broken glass was spilled on the floor. The window blind blew back with the wind and rushed in, and the aperture of the broken panes was ahead of a grey gaunt wolf. Mother cried out in a fright and struggled up into a sitting posture, clutched wildly at anything that would help her. Amongst other things, she clutched the wreath of flowers that Dr. Van Helsing insisted on my wearing around my neck and tore it away from me. For a second or two, she sat up pointing at the wolf, and there was a strange and horrible gurgling in her throat. Then she fell over, as if struck with lightning, and her head hit my forehead and made me dizzy for a moment or two. The room and all around me seemed to spin round. I kept my eyes fixed on the window, but the wolf drew his head back, and a whole myriad of little specks seemed to come blowing in through the broken window and wheeling and circling round, like a pillar of dust that travellers describe when there is a simoon on the desert. I tried to stir, but there was some spell upon me, and my dear mother's poor body, which seemed to grow cold already, for her heart had ceased to beat, weighed me down, and I remembered no more for a while. The time did not seem long, but very, very awful, till I recovered consciousness again. Somewhere near, a passing bell was tolling. The dogs all around the neighborhood were howling, and in our shrubbery, seemingly just outside, a nightingale was singing. I was dazed and stupid with pain and terror and weakness. The sound of the nightingale seemed like the voice of my dead mother, come back to comfort me. The sound seemed to have awakened the maids, too, for I could hear their bare feet pattering outside my door. I called to them, and they came in, and when they saw what had happened and what was that lay over me on the bed, they screamed out. The wind rushed in through the broken window, and the door slammed too. They lifted off the body of my dear mother and laid her, covered up with a sheet, on the bed after I got up. They were all so frightened and nervous that I directed them to go to the dining room and have each a glass of wine. The door flew open for an instant and closed again. The maid shrieked and then went out of the dining room and laid what flowers I had on my dear mother's breast. When they were there, I remembered what Dr. Van Helsing had told me, but I didn't like to remove them. And besides, I would have some of the servants to sit up with me now. I was surprised that the maids had not come back. I called them, but got no answer. So I went to the dining room to look for them. My heart sank when I saw what had happened. They all four lay helpless on the floor, breathing heavily. The decanter of sherry was on the table, half full, but there was a queer, acrid smell about it. I was suspicious and examined the decanter. It smelt of laudanum. I looked to the sideboard and found that the bottle which my mother's doctor uses for her... Oh did use, was empty. What am I to do? What am I to do? I am back in the room with Mother. I cannot leave her, and I am alone, save for the sleeping servants whom someone has drugged, alone with the dead. 
I dare not go out, for I can hear the low howl of the wolf to the broken window. The air seems full of specks floating, circling in the draught of the window. The lights burn blue and dim. What am I to do? God shield me from the harm this night. I shall hide this paper in my breast, where they shall find it when they come to lay me out. My dear mother is gone. It is time that I go too. Goodbye, dear Arthur. If I should not survive this night, God keep you, dear, and God help me. We hope you are enjoying our retelling of Bram Stoker's Dracula. If you are enjoying our version of the story, we ask that you please subscribe, like, or follow our podcast so that you'll be notified as soon as the next episode drops. This is a labor of love, and if you're enjoying the story, we encourage you to support us through ACAST Plus or tell your friends about us so that we can continue to share great stories. Thank you.